It's Thursday, April 20th, 2017. This is the Hermetic Hour. I'm your host, Pope Runyon. And tonight we continue to review and discuss the Modern English 2004 translation of Otto Rahn's 1937 Lucifer's Court. This was Rahn's travel journal from southern France to Iceland. When he researched his personal quest to solve the mystery of the Holy Grail, as described in the medieval romance Parseval by Wolfram von Essenbach. Ron believed that the medieval Cathars, the Gnostic heretics, who were wiped out by the Roman Catholic Albigensian Crusade in the late in the 1300s, were the keepers of the Grail. In this installment, we will get into the possible Persian Manichaean origin of Parseval. Arian, of course, and Ron's fascination with Hercules and the Argonauts legend, also Arian. And we will also discuss Nigel Graddon's 2008 bio on Ron and his rundown on all of our favorite Nazi spook books that were influenced by Ron's quest. So, tune in, and we will follow the shadow of the swastika from southern France all the way to Tibet and back again. Now, uh, I reviewed over last week's show, and and, uh, so, you know, I hope you have too. Uh, You remember it? And uh, we got through all of Otto Ron's adventures in... uh, in southern France, exploring the caverns and and uh, the castles and and interviewing the peasants and uh, and the surviving nobility and in general uh, his his um, uh, his adventures and quite frankly it's easy to see when reviewing all of his adventures and the things he did and and, and the experiences he had how much of an influence all of this, including this book that we're reviewing, uh, Lucifer's Court, how much of an influence this had on Lucas and Spielberg in the creation of Indiana Jones and his adventures, especially the uh, the second one, The Quest for the Grail. Now, um, tonight, we'd like to catch up on a few of the things uh, before we get into... Um, uh, his adventures outside of uh, southern France. Uh, we catch up on a few things that we didn't uh, that didn't didn't deal too deeply with uh, last week, and one of them is that Otto Rahn was primarily following Wolfram von Essenbach's Parsifal. That was his primary source, but he was also very very much influenced. By by Homer and by the legend of the Argonauts, and uh, that's Jason and the Argonauts, uh, and uh, and of course one of Jason's uh, primary shipmates on that expedition to find the Golden Fleece was the hero Hercules, and uh, now the hero Hercules had uh, has quite a presence in southern France in in in, in long long gone, and. Uh, in fact, there's a town named after Hercules uh, in, in the coast along the coast of France, and uh, one of the caverns in the Pyrenees. And you remember we discussed that that, that area is karst. And what I mean by karst is that it have a, you have uh, this this underground water table and lots of limestone caves and and um, and uh, with lots of stalactites and stalagmites and whatever. And this is karst, uh, what they call karst topography. And uh, one of these caverns was said to be the entrance to the underworld that Hercules uh, went into. And there's a legend about this, and I'm going to go ahead and and, uh, uh, get into the book here. Wolfram von Essenbach also, this is the stuff quoting Otto Rano. Wolfram von Essenbach also describes a cave. Before his hero Parseval finds the light of the grail, he stops in a cave of the Hermit Trevisant by the Fontaine uh, La Savalche, where Trevisant leads him before an altar, where Parseval is dressed in a tunic, just like a Cathar, 
who put on tunics before heretical ordinations in in Fontenay. And the correspondence is surely unambiguous. In a similar way, the cave of the Lombreves can be linked to the Grail legend. A set of stone stairs leads from the cathedral to another part of the tremendous labyrinth. Suddenly a ravine hundreds of feet deep opens up. Overhanging it is an enormous boulder from which the dripping water has conjured a cub, club, excuse me. The farmers call it the tomb of Hercules, and Wolfram also mentions Hercules as a prophet of the grail. The rural legend tells it thus. In times long gone, King Debrix ruled from an underground palace in the Lombreves. And one day Hercules came along, and he was welcomed by Debrix, who had a daughter named Pyrene. Hercules and the king's daughter fell passionately in love. And soon after, the adventurous warrior was called far away, and he left King Bradbrick's palace. Pyrenee, however, was carrying his child and followed him out of fear of her father's scorn and longing after her true love. Wild animals pounced upon the helpless princess, screaming she called for Hercules to help. Hearing her the distress call, he ran to her aid, but he was too late. Pyrenee was dead. Hercules cried, and the mountains roared, echoing his, his misery against rocks and caves. Then he buried Pyrenee, but she can never be forgotten, because the Pyrenees bear her name until the end of time. And the other three other stalactites in the lake in the midst of the cave, uh, from what uh, from what are called the throne of Bebrix, Bebrix's grave and the grave of Pyrenee. There the water runs incessantly, as if the mountains are weeping for the dead king's daughter. Her petrified garments that she wore in her life hang on the wall and the ceiling. Pyrenee is also supposed to have been the goddess Venus. And because the Sabartha's cavern is more beautiful, larger, and more mysterious than the others, and if I wanted to relate all of the experiences I had in it, then I would fill many, many pages. And quite often, I dangled in mortal danger, but always found my way back to, back in one piece. I almost never came home without discovering something. And if you want uh, Sabarthes explored, uh, explore Ornolac. Other discoveries there are very close to my heart. In particular, designs and inscriptions, some are age-old, while others are more of our time. The most recent inscriptions may be the question asked by a young man, why did God take his wife and his mother and his children? Another from the year 1850 demands the answer, what is God? And another offer, Maitre Labore was the man who defended Emile Zola, the writer who wrote the famous novels Rome and, uh, Rome and Lourdes. And if I am not mistaken, he was wounded at Rennes in 1899. And even Henry IV, the French Huguenot king, wrote his own name on the stone wall in 1576. Four decades later, he was murdered by the fanatical Catholic Francois Revelac. Henry was a descendant of this Carlamonde de Foy, and she's the grail, uh, the princess of the grail, Monsignor. Her burial place could very well be in the proximity of those stone objects where Hercules and Pyrenees slumber in death. Now, uh, I'll make a few comments on that. Lauren had a, had a, had a picture of Monsignor up, uh, up on the computer for a moment there. You know, when you go, Mike, the there, yeah, there, this is this beautiful, beautiful uh, picture of Monsignor on top of on top of the Pogue. Uh, what's left of it? It's it's just a shell, but it it, it uh, it's on top of that huge rock, the Pogue, and then uh, the, the path that leads up to it. You can see that this this like this this goat path that leads up to this castle. This is so. Uh, what uh, where do they where where do they where, where do they locate that one? You know what what. Chateau de Chateau de Mont to Monsignor, and okay, if you 
Southwestern French Chateau de Monseigneur. You can you can Google it, and uh, it's beautiful up there. Now, now let me let me say something about this cave though. This set of caverns is not just where uh, where Pyrenees died. It's also legend has it that this was the entrance to the underworld. And in one of his expeditions, uh, Otto Rahn found a statue of, of, of Cerberus, the you know the the, the god of hell, the, the guard dog of, of Hades, and and in up there and near the top of the cave. And of course, according to legend. Hercules dragged Cerebus out of out of the underworld, and when he dragged him out, and this is this is something we've discussed before in myth time, when Hercules dragged the guard dog of hell out into the light, this was when the underworld became the overworld, and this is something, by the way, that Jake Scratton Cat hasn't realized yet. And and uh, and I'm not sure that uh, that uh, I'm not sure that uh, uh, Stephen Skinner has either. But uh, before that time, before Hercules dragged that that dog out of hell and out of the underworld into the light, all of the constellations, the stars, and and all of the legends of the constellations and the stars were in the underworld. And and uh, they and then when he drags them out, they they then after that they they are up in the they're up in the sky, in the night sky. But uh, and, and the reason for this is 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 that uh, in very 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 ancient times, the uh, all the constellations and the planets and and the entire celestial phenomenon were all thought to be. In, in the underworld, and they and and, and they didn't they, they were thought to be, and then they didn't appear until in, until the, uh, the evening. And but at this at this point, we can say that when Hercules dragged that that god out, uh, that dog out of, out of, out of hell, that's when uh, the constellations became heavenly instead of of hellish, and that pulled uh, pulled the underworld in and became the overworld. Um, so, and yet, yet we have to admit that this statue of of the dog in this cavern, uh, um, Otto exaggerates the size. He he says that that it was several meters high, and actually it was. And yeah, there's a statue of the dog here, but in stone, and carved in stone. But but it's just it's nowhere near that big. And so he did exaggerate on that. Now, also, in that particular adventure, uh, he was going in these, um, and I can really, really relate to this because I've done a lot of spelunking when I was younger, a lot of spelunking and cave diving and, and, and a lot of the same things that, that Otto Rahn did, I, I, I remember doing, and even finding some underground uh, uh, ruins, like steps leading down to a pool, I found that down down in Central Florida. I found some of those, and uh, and the locals said it was the Underground Railroad for the slaves. But I doubt that very very much. Because, uh, but what but what you get into in 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 these areas is these caverns filled with water, and and this can be very dangerous in a number of cases because a lot of times you have to. You know, you have to swim underwater to get into the next grotto, to get into the next cave. And, and of course, if you go the wrong way or if you stir up the silt, you can you, you can get yourself in a lot of trouble. And also, too, Otto got stuck in one of these caves with his uh, with his faithful Senegalese servant Hutu. Uh, uh, he had this he had this big Senegalese. Uh, Servant, kind of like Mandrake the magician with Lothar. Uh, <laughs> probably where they got the idea from that part, Lothar and Mandrake. Uh, so uh, um, uh, Otto and, and his big and his big Senegalese servant are down there, and they're they're uh, up to their waist in this water, walking walking through this uh, this grotto, and it and there's a flash flood outside. There's a there's a rain, a, a torrential rain outside. And this causes a flash flood, and the two of them almost drown. And and and, uh, and his uh, Senegalese 
uh, his Senegalese faithful faithful servant, uh, like you know, manages to uh, to to save him. So, yeah, a lot of adventures, you know. And then when we discussed the uh, uh, last week, where where he's um, where he, he finds the he finds the uh, the cave full of snakes, and and he said the only way you can you can get to the to the treasure in the cave and then his his uh, to wait till uh, the, the priest is doing mass in town, and then the snakes are all asleep, and then you can, then you can grab, grab it, and if you if you don't, if you're not, your tummy isn't just right, then the snakes will get you. And uh, you know you can, you can see in 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 uh, the reading of Brian's book, and I wonder if uh, Spielberg, you know Spielberg and and uh, and, uh, and Lucas, they must have. Uh, they must have gotten some kind of a translation of this because there hasn't been an English translation available until recently, and but they must have had one because so many of the things that Indiana Jones gets into, you could really, really see them in in, uh, in Auto Run. They, they have the imagery and, and all this kind of business. Now, but this this thing with Hercules is very, very important because Hercules is one of the oldest heroes and, and demigods. He's a Christ figure, actually, in many, many ways. Uh, he, he's uh, Hercules uh, does his twelve labors, as you know. He has to do his twelve labors, and those those twelve labors, of course, are the uh, they were originally the, the conquering the beasts of the zodiac, and originally this was Phoenician, and these. Uh, now I'm, I'm digressing from from Otto Ron. I did, Ron probably knew this, but but I'm digressing a bit. But I want to fill in some blanks here. Uh, the Hercules's labors. He was originally his name was Melkart, and he was Phoenician. And his the twelve beasts are were depicted in the temple at Tyre way back in in 500 B.C. Uh, the the the, the uh, uh, twelve labors were frescoed on a fresco around the temple inside the temple of Tyre, and and uh, so we can say that that Hercules represented man, man, God, man, the son of the son of God, the son of man, or whatever, going having his twelve incarnations going around the the, the zodiac, uh, fulfilling these the, his twelve tasks. And and uh, this this is one of the one of the key one of the key uh, mystery mystery codes of the Western tradition is Hercules, and and and, and, and you recall that, that Alexander the Great uh, when he uh, we discussed this uh, numerous times Alexander the Great uh, marched by Tyre and. Uh, Wanted to be, he wanted to come over and make a sacrifice to to Hercules uh, in the temple, and sent a message across because Tyre is out on an island, and he sent a message across, and the and the Phoenician priests refused, and they said that but they they didn't want to refuse him to make the sacrifice, but they refused to let him go over to go in the temple, but what they said they would do is they would come across the isthmus and they would they would come across the channel and they would build an altar for him on the beach and they would let him make his sacrifice there and they'd help him, you know, and they'd, they'd, they'd build the altar and they would help him do it. Uh, Alexander felt insulted, so he turned his army into a bunch of engineers and they built a causeway all the way across to, to Tyre. They, and they built this causeway and they marched over there and they and they conquered Tyre and and he went inside there and did his sacrifice, and that's that's when the age of Taurus was over. That's when we had the age of Ares got started at that point, because uh, the age of Taurus, you know, was the killing of the bull, you know, the, the, the Taurus the bull, and and uh, that was one of Hercules's labors, and of course also one of Mithras. But but this is the end of the literally the end of the age of the end of the age of Taurus and the beginning of the age of Ares. And and in order to celebrate that, Alexander had five thousand Phoenicians, uh, devotees and priests crucified. That was an interesting situation. Anyway, uh, so Hercules is very important, uh, both in as Melkart and as and, and as 
Hercules or Heracles in in our in our tradition, and and apparently here he is. Uh, this whole tradition has been carried carried on over to the Pyrenees, and uh, as you know, the Greeks had colonies all over all over the Mediterranean. The Greeks and the Phoenicians also. So um, this is where all this got started. Now uh, the um, the story on the Golden Fleece figures. Very, very strongly in the Western tradition, uh, the Golden Fleece was uh, was figured figured prominently in the in the chemical wedding of Christian Rosenkreutz, and it was uh, uh, one of the great uh, mystical or magical artifacts of, of ancient legend. Now, let me explain to you quite frankly what the Golden Fleece was. It was a treasure, but it was also a very real device because in cultures on the Black Sea, on the uh, uh, the, uh, the eastern shore of the Black Sea, cultures over by Georgia, there was an underground river that went right through a vein of gold, and it came out out of a and ran down in, in a mountain stream, and the gold miners in cultures would line the rocks of the stream below this waterfall where this water came out with sheepskins. And they used the sheepskins to catch the gold that from this this underground river that, that, that was running right through this vein of gold. And this was, you know, their version of panning, like our old prospectors, you know, pan for gold. Instead of that, they used these, these sheepskins and and of course the sheepskins would become covered with gold dust and 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 they would and they would be fabulously wealthy or valuable and uh, and this was, was a treasure. This is what this is what the Argonauts were after. They were after the golden fleece. And as Wolf as uh, um, Otto Ron says numerous times through this book, the 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 Argonauts were Vikings. And the Vikings and the Argonauts were pirates, and he mentions this this affinity to the Vikings. Well, actually, he was right. They they are the same. Uh, here we get into this Aryan thing again, but they were the same stock. Those ancient Greeks, those ancient Argonauts, Argonauts, those Achaeans, were the same racial stock as the Vikings. They were they were Aryan, and and uh, and and so there there is this this affinity and of course these these fleeces that they were after were more fantastically wealthy because they were they were just about you know they're literally covered with gold um so that's what that's what the um the golden fleece is all about by the way i would recommend i'd recommend robert graves's hercules my shipmate which is uh you know robert graves is a very good scholar and, and mythologian but also he he writes he writes Hercules, my shipmate, in the form of a of a, of a novel, and I think it's been re-released. It's called The Golden Fleece, either one, but it's by Robert Graves. I would recommend that one if you want to get really get into the legend of the Golden Fleece and the Argonauts. And uh, of course, then there's all those Harry Housen's movie, Jason and the Argonauts, which is delightful. Uh, but uh, anyway, that's the, uh, the that, that, that's the Hercules and the Jason and the Argonauts connection. And um, one of the things about uh, about this um, that uh, this this connection with the Achaeans, uh, the ancient Greeks, these were not these are not the Greeks of, of Plato. The, the, the Greeks of, of uh, Plato, Plato and Aristotle's era, were they were they were Dorian, and yet they adopted all of the all of the Homeric mythology of the Achaeans. And they were, they were related, but they were not, uh, uh, you know, they're, they're, and yet, and this may come as a surprise to some people, Beowulf and his Geats from Gotland, according to, to modern scholars, Beowulf and his Geats from Gotland were direct, directly related to those Achaeans, those Homeric Achaeans. So you can say that Jason, that Jason and his Argonauts, and and uh, and Beowulf and his and his Gotlanders were 
of the same stock and the same ilk. And uh, and I'm sure I'm sure that Otto and Ron would have appreciated that. Now um, the next thing I want to get into uh, here uh, that that Otto and Ron ran into in uh, and that we that, that we that we kind of skipped over last week was uh, the sun and the moon and the zodiac and I'm going to read some of this to you. I'm reading from Otto's book now. I'm not a Bible expert, nor would I wish to be one. Nevertheless, for me, it is clear. The Old Testament and the New Testament do not speak of differing or opposing gods. For me, the gods in both are one and the same. Curses the beautiful morning star. And yet the New Testament reveals in the apocalypse of John a king and angel of the abyss, who has, in Greek, the name of Apollyon. Apollyon, the angel of the abyss and prince of this world, is none other than Apollo, the light bearer. My belief that the morning star in the Old Testament and the figure of Apollyon, who appears in the New Testament, are one and the same, based on the fact that in Greek the morning star, or phosphorus, the same means the same name also means light bringer, is the constant companion, messenger, and representative of the sun god Apollo as a supreme light bringer when he's called further the beautiful star of the morning and uh, is a reference to the sun. Significantly, I have selected the small Pyrenean town of Miracoy as the appropriate place to write these lines. It is located on the foot of that great pyramid that dominates the Grail Mountain of Monsignor. Some two hours away, from the hamlet at the foot of the castle rock. And I was again up there at Monsignor Castle. The engineer from Bordeaux was still looking for the true gospel of John for his secret society. And the principal reason for my being here is this. Pre-Christian times, Mirapo was called Delacartha, which means the city of light. Belus, Abelio, were the local names for the god Apollo. Once every year, Apollo, son of Zeus, returned to the south from beloved Hyperborea, that mythical country beyond the north wind, only too soon to head north beyond uh, on a predestined course. And the Greeks celebrated the way of the spring equinox uh, as their holiest uh, festival of Apollo. And it was the rising sun, majestic and unalterable light. Times time set that set for the sun god and Helios, who was initially admired as the main god only on the Isle of Rhodes, and the seat of Asia Minor assumed Apollo's place and became one with him. In the beginning, Apollo brought light to the Dorian and Ionian hunters, herders, and field farmers who migrated from the north to Helios after the long winter night. And they were the guardians of the fields and the pastures and the herds and bees and everything else that tugs at the heart of the farmer. And therefore the herders celebrated a festival in his honor with a ram and the farmers honored him with their harvest celebrations. In their songs they sang he had slain the winter dragon, Pythos, and begged the light not to stay too long in the north with the lucky people of Hyperborea. Now, let's talk about Hyperborea and Thule a little bit. One of the major themes that we run into in uh, in this uh, whole uh, this whole Aryan uh, uh, mystery school that. Uh, that Otto Ron seemed to be uh, trying to service, is this idea that there was a wonderful Aryan-type civilization up there near, near the Arctic Circle. Himmler and some of the others actually thought it was Iceland, and they thought that Iceland and, and, and was, uh, you know, was concealed an entrance to the underworld, which might which might be a survival of Hyperborea, uh, 
And uh, that's one of the reasons why Himmler encouraged uh, Otto Rahn to go up there. Otto Rahn didn't find it, but but we'll get into that later. But uh, one reason why Himmler uh, believed that is he was a great Jules Verne fan. And as you recall, Jules Verne wrote a uh, wrote a novel about uh, about uh, uh, an explorer finding. A volcanic cavern up there in Iceland that went all the way into the center of the earth. And Himmler believed that, and of course also Bulwer Lytton's thrill, you know, the the, come, the power of the coming race, uh, which uh, was an underground civilization. Uh, the, the some of the some of the Nazi occultists took this took this underworld this this subterranean world idea uh, very seriously. But anyway. Um, the Hyperboreans were a legendary northern, uh, highly civilized northern race, and actually, in a lot of ways, this this is connected to the idea of the swastika uh, representing the, uh, the the great bear and the little bear and Draco revolving around the North Pole and. Uh, if you want to really check into this and, and really get, get to the bottom of it, Jocelyn Godwin has has written a, a book called Arctos, and you might want to mark that down. Arctos. Arctos is, explains this this polar this polar mystique, and one of the things that uh, that uh, is pointed out not not in in this not in Ron's book but in in. Uh, um, in uh, Nigel Graddon's Battle uh, Around the Quest of the Holy Grail, is that there was a secret society in Europe, not just Germany, but in Europe called the called the Polaris, people who were really into this idea of the of, of the polar of, of the polar civilization and the Hyperboreans, and 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 also the underground uh, aspects. And if this sounds a little somewhat similar to our American Shaver mystery, well, that's not surprising. That's probably where it came from. And Joshua uh, uh, Godwin's Arctos, which we have discussed before on, on, on Hermetic Hour, is a very, very excellent book, and it gives you uh, the background of this. And this whole thing got into Central Asian shamanism, and one of the things that I will mention now, it's, it's a little out of sequence, because one of the reasons, apparently... One of the reasons why Himmler and his and his and Wise Thor and that and that bunch of uh, you know of occultists in, in the SS, one of the reasons why they sent expeditions to Tibet to to try to find Aryan Tibet was one of the reasons apparently is that and I don't know where this comes from, but I know and uh, Graden mentions it in his book. The founder of the original Tibetan religion, which was not Buddhism, it was Bunpo. The founder of, Bun, of the Bon religion, of a man by the name of Geshenrab, was apparently a Persian and, 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 uh, or an Aryan and who, who, who brought Bunpo into Tibet. So therefore, this whole, uh, this whole business of the of Agartha and Shambhala and and and, and the uh, the Nazis' interest in Tibet, and they were looking why they were measuring you know they were they were they were measuring Tibetan skulls and 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 and, uh, and they didn't have DNA samples at, the, at that time. And they certainly would have been into taking DNA samples. That would have been the, that, that definitely what they would have been doing. But they they didn't have that, so they were measuring skulls and taking all kinds of of uh, measurements and samples. Trying to establish if, if if there was any Aryan blood in in the Tibetans, and they were very interested in in the Bon religion, and this even they, they this is probably the source of this uh, uh, this legend, which nobody seems to be able to prove that there was uh, there was a connection between the Nazis and the Bunpos, and that they were actually that they had actually brought some. Some Bunpo Lamas uh, all the way into into Berlin, and uh, that of course got started by Pauls and Pauls and Bergier back in the 1960s with their Morning of the Magicians. That story, nobody's ever been able to confirm that. But but 
it apparently they did think that Gishen Rob and his original Bunpos uh, were were Aryans. And the interesting thing about this is that the Parseval of Wolfram von Essenbach is very, very probably, and, and it probably is Manichaean, which is a Persian, a form of Persian Gnosticism, and you know, can't call it Christian Gnosticism uh, because Mani, the, the, the Persian Gnostic prophet, uh, post-Jesus prophet, and he venerated he venerated Jesus and Buddha and Zoroaster and and, and all and, and all the prophets, including I suppose even through Moses in there too. But uh, but he 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 venerated all of them. But and and he was the, he claimed that he was the last of the prophets, and this was Mani, and and he's the founder of of a uh, of a tradition called Manichaeism, which is is Gnostic, and it. It made its way all the way into southern France around the time of the Cathars, and there are a lot of scholars who would who say that the Cathars were not were not uh, uh, you know they weren't European uh, Gnostics. Uh, they <laughs> they think they were Manichaean, in other words, they were influenced by by Persian Gnosticism. Now, if uh, and 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 uh, Otto Rahn was one of his informants had told him that that there was a mysterious book in some strange Eastern language that was part of the treasure of Monsignor, and that this book had been seen and people knew it was there and knew the Cathars had it. Well, now well we we know the Cathars had the Gospel of John. We know they had, and we and we, and of course another of of Otto's informants said that they had their own version of their of Revelation, but this is this book that we're talking about uh, could have very well been the to use the German term the Urparsival. You know, in other words, this could have been the the secret the secret Manichaean uh, um, uh, uh, source source book for Parsival, possibly, and. And uh, if so, then then quite possible that that uh, that Wolfram von Essenbach came by a copy of it, or, or uh, and, and this is very possible. But there's uh, one of the Nazi the Nazi spook book writers who fortunately has been discredited, and I was one of the people who helped discredit him. And this is uh, Trevor Ravenscroft. Um, he he wrote a, a book called The Spear of Destiny. And uh, the spirit of destiny is full of so much, so much, so much phony, uh, fake historical news. You know, this, <laughs> these people, after Morning of the Magicians came out in 1965, uh, they, 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 this started an industry of of fake Nazi occult books. Most of them, by the way, were inspired by Otto Rahn. Otto Rahn's this this book that we're that we're reviewing this this Lucifer's Court was the inspiration for most of these Nazi spook books and and uh, and uh, but one of the main ones was the Spear of Destiny by by uh, Trevor Ravenscroft this this book was as I say was full of so many errors that but. The main the main error was the spear of destiny itself, because the spear was supposed to be the spear of Longinus, you know, the spear that pierced the side of Christ uh, on Golgotha on the cross. Well, actually, uh, <laughs> the spear, the lance that ended up in the Hopbrow Museum, the one that that that, that Ravenscroft is talking about, the one that has the little silver sheath around it and it's broken in the middle. This of course, is not a Roman, any kind of Roman lance or any kind of Roman spear that was ever made. This is a, this is a northern, a northern European pike, and it's really obvious. And the way it happened, the way it came about, is that Constantinople, in, in uh, one of its later sieges, of, one of the later sieges of Constantinople, not the not the not the one where the Crusaders turned on them, but but a later siege by the Turks, and they were starving, and, they, and the Turks had them surrounded, and they were starving. And this was you know this is in the in the 
1300 sometime. The uh, and this crazy this crazy monk who everybody knew was was you know around the bend and up the pole. He starts digging a hole in the middle of the courtyard in, in Constantinople, uh, out in front of the barbican, and he starts digging this hole. And he's digging, 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 digging. He's, and you know, they said, "Well, hey, what are you digging for, Father?" And I'm digging for the, I'm, I'm digging for the the the, 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 the sacred lands, you know. And he's, he's digging, 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 and he comes up with this rusty spear point. And he said, "This is it. The lands that pierce the side of Christ." And well, you know, it's this rusty old uh, spear, uh, old spearhead. But it's a, it's a, you know, it's a European spearhead. Uh, you know, and, and, and it's not a Roman pileus. It's just, it's, 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 it's a Northern European pike. And and he's waving it around, and and uh, and Mud, he rallied, he rallied the uh, uh, the knights, and he rallied the. Uh, the survivors of Constantinople, and they rode out and they drove off the, uh, the, the the besiegers. They drove off the Turks, and and so this ever since then, this has been the spear of destiny. Well, of course, it's a nice it's a nice relic and and, and all of that, but it was not the spear. It was certainly not the spear that, that you know that that pierced the uh, side of Christ. But it ended up you know that's how it ended up. And, uh, and supposedly, according to Ravenscroft's book, you know, God, Hitler wanted it. Anybody that possesses this this thing uh, can defeat defeat their enemies and whatever. Well, it worked once. At least it worked in Constantinople. But uh, but that's what it was. And uh, that wasn't the only mistake that he made in the book. I mean, uh, uh, his idea of, of this Lundauf that he thought was Klingsover was the the sorcerer in in, uh, in Parsifal was ridiculous, and uh, so that was, you know, as I say, that was that was Ravenscroft. But Ravenscroft, apparently though, after the Spear of Destiny, Ravenscroft got back into reading Otto Rahn or whatever, and he got into he read this section about. Uh, let's see if I can find it here. Oh yeah, there it is. And he wrote a book called the, the, called The Sacred Chalice. And in that, that's a little more credible. Okay, now, here we go. The provincial Cathars kept national writings and songs, including Wolfram's Parsifal. The bibliography of the heretics was as varied as their history, shaped by the Greeks, Celts, and Teutons in Wolfram's uh, lyrical work. We can find, apart from Oriental nomenclature, an abundance of Occidental references. Some examples, Wolfram's Song of, of, of Persia, Babylon, Euphrates, Tigris, and India, in addition. He praised Alexandria, the Trojans, uh, the country Hyperbore, Hyperborecon, the country of the Hyperboreans. He amalgamated Provence. Spanish, French, and British place names, Aragon, Catalonia, Glasgow, Paris, Normandy, Burgundy, Brittany, Ireland, and London, and German and Scandinavian names, Worms, Rhine, Sathret, Phrygia, Denmark, Norway, and Greenland. Further, Wolfram's works imaginative play with Zarathustra, Aeneas, Plato, Heracles, Alexander, Virgil, Siegfried, and the Nibelung. An opponent of Dietrich von Bern and, and, and Wolfhart, Dietrich's uh, follower. Each true troubadour had to know by heart and history the myths and had to possess an encyclopedic knowledge. Wolfram, or his alter ego, Coyote, meets these conditions to such an extent that even today Parsifal fills us with awestruck admiration. Indeed, it is among the greatest achievements of the human spirit. Until the 13th century, Catharism in Europe remained powerfully independent from the Vatican in Rome, which did not need to be cleansed of Jewish mythology because it had not orally superficially accepted its teachings, which had been felt in an enormous area, from India to the Pillars of Hercules, from Greenland to Sicily, and which, however, still knew its center at only one pole, the North Pole, the Polis Arcturus, as Wolfram called it, during the contest at, at Wartburg. This power unified all humans from the most diverse 
regions and nations, but of the same race and the same origin. Following the age-old Aryan myths, we call this strength Aryan power. Now, of course, as I'm sure you realize, a lot of this was, of course, co-opted by the Nazis. And and uh, and this whole idea of the of of the uh, of the pole, the polar cycle, and the polar season, and, and the swastika representing the the seasons, the cross of the seasons, as reflected by the passing of the Great Bear. Now, I should mention, of course, that the Great Bear also figures in Hermetic philosophy and in Hermes, and there is. And there is a connection in Hermetic philosophy to this polar, to this polar myth too. This gets us out of pretty much out of southern France, and and then uh, after that, Wolfram takes off to Germany. Uh, he he goes through through Italy first, and 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 has various uh, chapters in the book in 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 his explorations in Italy. Uh, but then he gets in up into Germany, and and when he gets to Germany, we find out something. Uh, else that is the figures in his uh, mythology. And that's, quite frankly, the the story of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And and, uh, this turns out to be a very, very important uh, myth that has a lot to do with with Rosicrucianism. And it also has to do with another book, a book that Wolfram kept saying he was going to write and never did. And this was a book about the the great German inquisitor, Conrad of Marburg. And Conrad of Marburg was a uh, sadomasochistic uh, inquisitor, and Catholic, of course, Catholic in those days. And he persecuted the Luciferians in Germany. Now, you know, the Cathars themselves were not Luciferian. But there was a Luciferian society in Germany. And some people don't think so, but uh, actually, uh, Richard Cavendish, uh, I, I recall, Richard Cavendish, uh, the, the British uh, scholar, confirmed it. And Wolfram has a section here in the book about a confession, uh, confessions that, that, that uh, uh, Conrad uh, extracted under threat of torture. Uh, he was he was a kind of a Torquemada kind of a character. He was a, an inquisitor. And Snow White was a Hungarian, Austro-Hungarian princess named Elizabeth. Conrad, unfortunately, was her confessor. She was a very beautiful woman, and she apparently, at least if Conrad Conrad is to believe, believe she enjoyed being tortured by Conrad. You know, so there was a this was a sadomasochistic situation where this poor woman was was uh, uh, was dominated by him, and to the point where he, in order to save her soul, and they eventually made a saint out of her. So he he really did uh, the you know along with whipping her. Almost to death, he he did he did manage to get her to, to make a saint out of her anyway, but he got her to come and live with him, and and this so this was a very a very very kind of a sick situation, and and uh, and uh, Wolf uh, uh, yeah Otto, Otto Ron wanted to write a book on Conrad and his and his uh, affair with with Saint Elizabeth, which he never got around to doing, but he did certainly document, you know, the persecution of the Luciferians in, uh, in Germany. Now, this Luciferian society in Germany, they, they actually did. They, they took uh, Isaiah at his word and, and, uh, and made, made Lucifer their, their primary deity, not Satan now, Lucifer. And apparently, well, at least according to Cavendish, they, 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 they believed that if they went underground... Uh, anything they did underground was okay. So that was what uh, Conrad accused him of, of having orgies in caves. And they'd go underground and they'd all get down in the cave and blow the candles out and, and have group groups, supposedly, at least according to Conrad. Uh, but Conrad, of course, himself was was uh, was whipping and groping poor Elizabeth. <laughs> but he was, uh, you know, he, he at the same time, he was having these people hanged and burned and then and having his own little little genocide in Germany with him. Now, one of the things about Elizabeth that is fascinating 
is that the poor woman died uh, at an early, uh, at a young age, and but she'd been, but Conrad had, in, in, in the course of, of, uh, of making her expiate her sins, he had, he had gotten her canonized. And then what they did to that poor woman after she died to make relics out of all of her bones and her skin and everything else. The whole business of, of, of all of the horrible things they did to her body, and everybody wanted a piece of Elizabeth, and uh, in fact, they're apparently all over all over a certain area of Germany. Every every little church has got a piece of Elizabeth in it. <laughs> and this 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 odyssey of the, the poor woman's body is 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 incredible, and I'm not going to go through it all. I can kind of think that Otto was a bit on, you know. He, he was. This was getting a little bit too much, you know. And maybe it's good that he never wrote the book. <laughs> His book that you know that we do have is is very very good. Now, so after he, after he got finished with the Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and, and poor Elizabeth, uh, he took off for Iceland. And of course, you know, he took off for Iceland. Probably, although he doesn't say so, but he probably took off for Iceland looking for Jules Verne's cave, uh, lava tube, or whatever. He didn't find it. But what he did find was uh, Sorelson's the uh, the old Viking the old Viking Homer who wrote the who wrote the, the Edda. He found, went to his cottage and got inspired to write his uh, kind of conclusion on uh Bardic paganism on mythology and, and I'm gonna read that read this, this his his reflections while he's at uh Snorlson's, uh, cottage here. Because I think that this this gives us a good idea of of Otto Rahn's feelings. Myths have nothing to do with faith and creed, because most faiths become organized religions. When the physical presence of gods became nebulous abstractions, people have yearned for the missing soul in new faiths. And if we accept the mythological world of the old gods and its roots and the legendary world of popular myths. Any other analysis is illogical. The mythical world of the old gods is not the product of poetry. Far more, mankind is the product of the gods. First, the image of the gods is revealed in man. Woe to man, if he wishes to see himself as a god. Then the gods are offended. They leave him. His image takes precedence over that of mankind. Man's desires and knowledge of what mankind can and should be, he learned from the gods. Gods are always in the forefront. If the mythological being was the product of fantasy, then he was the product of a divine fantasy that invaded the imagination of mankind. He belonged to a fantasy world that opened his own cosmology and hymns within a strict structure of pictorial imagery, just as it appears in nature, but accompanied by words and plants and animals and seasons and in the course of the planets. And thanks to the strength of his soul, he told the truth as the practical part of his divine concept. In this was humanity remained open to the cosmos without reticence. The source of religion is celestial, not human. First, a god must enlighten the dream of mankind. Ancient religions were a fusion between the godly and mankind. They were a way to organize physical and spiritual existence and join it to the divine. The legendary man was nourished from the cosmos and like an embryo formed in the mother's womb. As in all religions, divine revelation is not madness, but the most authentic of all realities. It forged a people from the horde. Early cultures did not live in an indifferent world of things. Rather, they were brimming with significance and communicative sanctity. Human life won priestly, concentrated importance. As every divine manifestation touched the human soul, extraordinary creativity was unleashed. This engendered man to speak about the immensity that had possessed him. And the most noble of these languages was culture. Yet culture is a divine language and has become almost extinct because it has been reduced 
to the all-too-human considerations of profitable usefulness. We have corrupted the noblest manifestation of ancient times through our self-centric lifestyle. Instead of measuring ourselves against the greatness of the past, we measure the past against ourselves. Culture is a service to our world, and cultural activity in the ancient world could be likened to a pair of arms outstretched to the heavens. The individual carried in him like a seed what man can give and take from the world. He stood between heaven and earth, funneling what was underneath to the world above and what was above to the world underneath. Children frolicking around a tree in a meadow are already a cultural event. They do not even try to understand the world with its intellect. Instead, they feel it in their breast as they breathe it in their heart throbs. On a bright spring day, children bring floating elements and elementary in consonance with a round dance. Culture is neither abstract symbols nor organized commemorations. It is the overwhelming presence of the powers of the earth. The world and God are no longer theories. Instead, they are served with pure emotion. The highest and most secretive pinnacle of culture is, of course, sacrifice, and any selfish intentions should be seen as corruption. An authentic sacrifice consummates human activity because the cosmic order of the world is, rein is reinforced in the act. The victim is dominated not only by selfish greed or the cowardly desire to obtain the favor of the powerful, but rather by an inner richness that he wishes to spend for others in a life-spreading revelation. As it is, human life intrinsically a huge sacrificial rite in which all the elements, animals, and gods take part. A person not only receives but also gives. A good portion of health and spiritual order lies in this ritual activity. Yes, even the gods favored these people who were willing to become part of the creative force through their selfless actions. And also, the sun sacrifices its rays when they descend to earth. Water evaporates. The life of plants and their colors, fruits and aromas, are all the artificial answer of the earth to the sacrifice of the heavens. Ancient sacrifice had no purpose other than the act itself. Nothing should happen or should be desired or should be influenced by magic. Its reality was within the act itself. Through it, a person announced his fusion with the powers and the, creature, and the, and the creatures of the world. That creatures in nature nourish themselves with one another is an expression of this generosity and reception. There is nothing selfish in it. Rather, it is an act that gives all and receives everything. The profound bond that united the ancient Germans and the powers of nature was formed by the diversity of their sacrifices and how these acts contributed to maintaining their society. And in this way, lighting torches, singing hymns and saying, and sayings and sacrificing plants and animals pleased the spirits of the, uh, the springs and the trees, hanging flowers, colorful bands and fruits from branches, and singing and dancing around them were just some of the ways that the people chose to honor the living energy of trees. In ancient times, even houses were built around the trunks of living trees in order that people might grow with these saplings and give strength to and take strength from them. Celestially inspired nature became a bond that held mankind in a society. According to Tactus, the Germans refused to honor their gods with human-like pictures or idols inside closed rooms because this was incompatible with the gods' greatness. With their prayers, they, they dedicated groves and forests to their deities, and they piously invoked the gods' names at every mysterious event. To underline the old spiritual system of living with nature, the first Christians destroyed these forests and built churches with their wood. They taught the pagans to recognize only dead wood in the trees and prepared the way for modern man's ruthlessness and hostility toward nature so that man now sees in his surroundings only working material for his purposes and pleasures. 
I'm, I want you know. I wish, I wish Fred Adams had lived long enough to read this, <laughs> to be able to read this book. He would have loved it. Although mythology remains in a sort of gray prehistory, it does not belong to the past. It is the ongoing and hidden strength of history, which reflects in events what mythology has already symbolized. And although these mythical powers remain hidden in prehistory, they are, ridic- they are ridiculed as such in the new order. Make no mistake, however, they inhabit the dark corners of the subconscious, where their effect can still be felt. It is exactly there that myths slandered as unreal and unhistorical retain their metaphysical reality. We must demand an effort from honest historians to help us surmount the ever-present scourge of materialism. As reality becomes more mythical, it remains more real in both space and time, and eventually it overcomes space and time. The labor is over, and and if no longer, it no longer possesses the ability to reproduce. Only the powers of mythology alone could do this. As Schiller once said, what was never and nowhere can never grow old. And as a historical personality becomes greater than our powers of expression, he becomes more mythical. The transition from legendary to human historical reality created tradition and living heroes. These gods appear in human form as simple people who provoked the disgust of other gods. They appear as founders of cities uh, or as law speakers in the dawn of human history and are identifiable with particular historical events that guided the high priests and kings of ancient history. In the realm of legend, the non-historical and Superhistorical invade the historical, yet legends do not reveal what con- what conventional historians uh, are used to. From the historian's point of view, legends represent a fantastic distortion that demands interpretation. Such tales may be more true than modern historical works because the popular uh, soul speaks out with special strength in the construction of a legend. These tales, which were never intended to recount actual events, told the story of human destinies. All histories should take very seriously the legends that surround Arminius, Theodoric, and Alexander. If we understand the sign of the times properly, we are no longer interested in the old gods and the, and the and other heroes because of certain documents which have been discovered that declare as imaginary the events that refer to them. And yet, if we want to explore the deeper meaning of our past, we are only beginning to understand the destructive power of the forces of moderneity, and that this knowledge is more precious than ever. The twilight of the gods was at the same time, the dissolution of the tribal loyalty to the gods, heroes, and all mighty forces of nature. Only cosmic considerations of ancestral blood can free mankind. And the twilight of the blood is the same as the twilight of the gods. And as the blood loses its spiritual significance, it dries, and likewise the ancestors go silent. Then begins the struggle of everybody against everyone. And in place of mythical divine wisdom, a ritual mechanical intellect has assumed its place in the me-addicted world of things. Individual freedom is bought with death and burial. These human realities are reflected in the cosmos as the destruction of the gods of light by dark powers. And in a moving passage, the Edda mirrors this. Fear of the world afflicts the gods as they feel themselves threatened by Baldur's death because he more than any other thing was the embodiment of nature. The mythical world of prehistory also saw its destruction in the final battle of the gods. Thor fought with uh, the Midgard uh, serpent, and he overcame and killed her, but nine paces from there, 
and he was killed by her poison. Odin was eaten by a wolf, a revenge as great as the distance between heaven and earth. We should remember that Rome's mother was a she-wolf. Osbad managed to turn around Odin's son, the silent white heir, killed by the wolf and yet another act of revenge, and as it says in the Edda, Balder returned and announced to mankind the divine mystery of earth and the cosmos. On Gimli's heights I saw a room brighter than the sun and decked with gold. Worthy lords must live there and enjoy its pleasures without end. Where rides the powerful, an instance of the gods, the strong from above, who steer everything. He decides the field of battle and speaks the eternal runes. What is the strength from above that conquers the power of death and hatred? Who can reawaken the very lonely mankind after the twilight of the gods and his knee addiction so that we can rebuild society in selfless service, taking care not to destroy freedom but to heal it. I gave my companion my hand and I thought that every strength from above is brought by the son whose children we all are. And in the New Testament, he is called Apollyon. And he has suffered injustice. Singing traveled through the air of the summer solstice in Iceland. Was it sacred music that announced Baldur's death and return? As this dead god was consumed by the flames of the fur of the firehorn. His father Odin whispered in his ear the greatest wisdom. The same word could have come from Lucifer or from Lohengrin or Helios. These swan knights had a special happy message to bring to the Christian people. As we returned to Reckholt, I picked up a stone. I will take it home to join the peace of Delphi, Temple Freeze, and that stone that I dug from the ruins of Montsegur. And so ends Lucifer's court. As I said, I... Uh, Lady Joe Carson, if you're listening, you know, this, this is one that Fred, this is one that, this, this is a book, uh, that, that Fred would have absolutely loved. And, uh, and let's see, you know, it just, it just came out in 2004. So, you know, uh, 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 and Fred didn't read German, so consequently this is, uh, you know, it hasn't been available, uh, and, and, and uh, he would have loved it, and, and I strongly recommend that you give it a read, too. Anyway, uh, next week we'll be back with another uh, exciting hermetic adventure, and, uh, and until then, good magic.